Hello and welcome to the Tuesday edition of Oh God, What Now? The arms aloft hacienda banger of political podcasts. Go Angie Rayner. On today's show, Jacob Rees-Mogg says the ripe fruit of Brexit is ready to be harvested. Shame we kicked out all the fruit pickers. We look at six years of sunlit promises and soggy reality. Plus, protests are gripping two of the world's most repressive regimes. We discuss the latest from Iran and China. It's coming home. But what if it isn't? Football isn't the only place where we're managing our expectations and are plagued by self-doubt. Following a Labour landslide in a Chester by-election, why do progressives find it so difficult to be optimistic? Let's meet this week's unfathomably sexy panel. Arthur Snell. (laughs) Hello, Alex. He's the host of Doomsday Watch and the author of How Britain Broke the World. Hi, Arthur. Friday saw the first tranche of the Twitter files, Truth Bomb, a set of internal emails released by Musk to a blogger, the first person ever dumb enough, I think, to blow the whistle on a company he owns. Um, This will be awesome, declared Musk, was it? Uh, No, only if you are in that rather sad uh, demographic, which is triggered by the words Hunter Biden's laptop, um, (laughs) which is probably most of our listeners are probably not very into that. But if you're in an obscure corner of American right, this is the most exciting thing on the Internet. Uh, Basically, what we're supposed to believe is that there was a big government conspiracy to prevent people from knowing what was on Hunter Biden's laptop. Uh, Whereas, in fact, what actually happened is that one person Uh, Joseph Biden, who at the time, of course, was a private citizen, asked Twitter if they wouldn't release hacked material from his son's laptop. This is a son who, of course, has had all kinds of addiction and other problems. Um, And yeah, that's about it, really. It it seems to me at times that maybe he should just release a dick pic (laughs) so they they can all just move on. Well, the the one sort of big outcome of it all was that uh, somebody who is triggered by those words is Donald Trump. And having... uh, No, Donald, he's famously calm. Well, indeed. But on this particular topic, he finds it difficult. And he then said that the, uh, the, the Constitution of the United States should be terminated so that he could then be president again. Very good. Um, Ros Taylor is a writer and contributing editor at our podcast Overlords, Podmasters. Hello, Ros. Hello. (laughs) Overlords, Um, I love it. (laughs) Labour published a report on Monday by former Prime Minister Gordon Brown setting out plans for pretty sweeping constitutional change, including abolishing the House of Lords and a programme of regional devolution. Keir Starmer called it the biggest ever transfer of power from Westminster to the British people. Is it a good thing and does anyone care? Yeah, I think it is a good thing and I think people do care. Keir Starmer may never be in a better position to make radical change than if the Labour Party is elected at the next election. And it feels like a time for radical change at the moment. I think this is one of those things where a change like electing the House of Lords feels like an enormous, massive, massive deal in Westminster. And to an extent, yes, it is. Mm. But I think it's a much less of a deal to the electorate. And Sleaze hangs around peerages now to such an extent that I can't understand why anyone would accept one. Uh, It's got got to that stage. And I was really surprised by the ambition of this uh, document because it's not just Lord's reform. There's loads of stuff here. There's anti-corruption measures. There's citizen juries to decide if MPs have actually broken the rules, banning second jobs for MPs, no foreign money in politics anymore. This is really massive stuff. And I think it will have an appeal to the electorate. Yeah, I I think I agree. Although there's a part of me that thinks last time we transferred power to the British people, Brexit happened. Um, Gavin Esler is the Chancellor of the University of Kent and author of How Britain Ends, which is not a sequel to How Britain Broke the World. But obviously you should still buy both. Hello, Gavin. Hello, and you should. It's Christmas. You should definitely buy both. You find out from Arthur how Britain broke the world, and you find out how Brexit broke Britain for me and how Britain <laughs> ends, actually. <laughs> Although that's not a recommendation. I keep saying it's a, it's an observation. On Sunday, as Arthur mentioned, Donald Trump called for the termination of all rules, regulations and articles, even those found in the Constitution. Should we be laughing or, or stockpiling bottled water? Well, he's already done that, I think. Uh, I don't mean stockpiling bottled water or laughing. I mean, he's already terminated the Constitution in the sense that 
the American Constitution is a wonderful document uh, or, or collection of documents, actually. You can go and visit them. You can have a look at them. You can read them. But it also depends, as does our unwritten or uncodified Constitution, on people obeying certain norms of behaviour. There's nowhere in the American Constitution that says you should concede if you've clearly lost an election, as Trump did. Originally, there was nowhere in the American Constitution that said you can only serve two terms. But when but George Washington did. Uh, and everybody kind of obeyed that unwritten norm until FDR. And then the Constitution was actively changed to prevent it. So there's no, nothing in the American Constitution that says that you shouldn't tell 30,000 lies while in office, which is the calculation that was made about Trump. So he's already damaged it very severely. I think he's a rather sad specimen these days. I thought, I thought he was fairly sad, but dangerous when he was in office. So now as he kind of disintegrates. Um, we should actually pay attention to him because, unfortunately, it's his supporters that we should worry about. But as for Trump mm. himself, I don't think he's going to make a comeback. Before we start, a quick reminder. If you want to delight slash trigger members of your family and friends with gifts from our fantastic Christmas range at podmarket.co.uk, you've got until this Thursday, 8th of December, to order and beat the Christmas post. Given the strikes, we've had to bring the order date forward a little because unlike Liz Truss, we like to deliver, deliver, deliver. So make sure you order by this Thursday to get your Oh God What Now t-shirts and bunker mugs Arthur, you've been test driving the Doomsday Watch tea towel. Is it battle worthy? <laughs> yes, it, it's um, it's it quite extraordinarily absorbent. <laughs> it's what you want from a tea towel, isn't it? <laughs> That's podmarket.co.uk. Order by Thursday the eighth and choose either twenty-four or forty-eight hour tracked shipping, and you will get your stuff in time to make Christmas woke again. First this week, like a Victorian whippet nipping at your trouser leg, Jacob Rees-Mogg is refusing to let go of his pledge to dispense with all EU-derived law by next year. But business, legal, consumer and environmental groups are all lobbying the government to scrap the retained EU law bill, warning it'll cause mayhem. Meanwhile, the sunny uplands are increasingly looking like a landslide, Post-Brexit deals with Australia, New Zealand and Japan have been discredited, and new deals with the US, India, China and Canada are looking trickier by the day. Ros, six years ago, David Davis promised no downside, only considerable upside. Michael Gove said, we hold all the cards. Liam Fox reckoned, I can see you smiling at me, Liam Fox reckoned a trade deal with the EU would be the easiest in human history and pitilily thought it would take 10 minutes. Three years ago, Boris Johnson apparently had everything finally ready to bung in the oven. So why are we still chopping carrots, so, so to speak? Setting your own rules, you know, it's actually not that easy because you have to get <laughs> other people to agree to the rules before you can set them. It's not just a unilateral move to quit a massive set of trade agreements that the EU had negotiated. It's not like... I think I think the Brexiteers presented it almost as like pressing the reset button when your computer isn't working very well. And then magically, if it works... It comes you know, on again. It comes <laughs> on again. And all those programmes sort themselves out. And all the crashes that you, you know, were, were having uh, resolve themselves. And it's just not like that. <laughs> Trade deals are the result of decades, decades of complex negotiation. You know, GATT and then WTO and then EU deals and international law. And, and so they have to be replaced by multiple, multiple bilateral deals. Um, and added to which, countries are naturally going to take advantage of the fact that you're desperate for quick wins, which seems to have happened with the Australia deal that Liz Truss was so proud of and which she trumpeted. And it turns out to have been not a very good deal after all. We will be negotiating this stuff forever, forever. because trade law is just the most complex thing you can possibly imagine. <laughs> Yes, it's more like uh, switching off the computer, taking out the motherboard and yeah. then trying to switch it back <laughs> exactly. on. Exactly. That's um, a very good metaphor. <laughs> a, a few days ago, the European Parliament quietly agreed rules with the Commission for imposing sanctions on the UK if our government pushes on with this protocol bill. Um, this is despite the much more positive mood music recently. How, how do you explain that paradox? 
Well, in the words of one of the uh, lead negotiators from the EU, he said the mood music is better, but it hasn't translated into action. In other words, they are still worried that the UK will decide to break the Northern Ireland Protocol for its own domestic reasons, basically mm. give in to uh, ERG backbenchers or come under massive pressure from people in Northern Ireland to improve on the deal, which is not of course, not not an ideal deal by a long way for uh, Northern Ireland. Ursula von der Leyen, on the other hand, said relations had improved after she met Sunak last week. But this move is basically intended to show that the EU is serious about enforcing the protocol and that it can quickly impose sanctions if Britain does decide to break it. So the challenge for Sunak will be as it was for Truss and as it was for Boris Johnson to make the best of a pretty crappy deal and try to keep Northern Ireland on board despite the tensions there. Mm. Gavin... Sovereignty was one of the Brexit Brigade's favourite words. A bonfire of regulations was one way they planned to stick it to the man. And cutting immigration was another. How are things going on each of those two fronts? <laughs> well, well, first... I'm, I, just, I'm just asking a totally I love you, yes. I, I, yeah, well, I, I mean, first I would challenge our listeners to let us know the top 10 things that Jacob Rees-Mogg in his life has ever achieved for the British people. And uh, rather like him asking the son to give him some ideas about what to do about Brexit, I think it may be a fairly empty list. Um, sovereignty. Well, uh, I've been doing a book tour and talking a lot about, you know, how Britain falls apart or otherwise. And sovereignty uh, comes up when Brexit is mentioned. And uh, it always strikes me that those who bring it up always talk about it as if it's like virginity. You know, it's either intact or it's not intact. And if it's broken, <laughs> it's completely ruined. And, and you know, we've, we've, sh we've shared sovereignty in so many ways. We share it in NATO. We share it in the, you know, the IMF and, and, and other things. We shared it with the European Union. That's, that's how, <laughs> how the world works. We are not North Korea uh, and even North Korea has to share sovereignty for various reasons. So that's a nonsense. The bonfire of regulations. Well, I fell out of my cradle listening to politicians tell us how they were going to cut red tape and break bureaucracy and so on. So I just think it's nonsense. So we, nobody believes that at all. Um, immigration is is much more interesting. I was um, I, I, I spent a lot of time in Kent because I'm uh, Chancellor of University. I was on the beach the other day uh, on, the, on the south coast and I saw a rubber dinghy that had been abandoned by people who were desperate to, to get here. And uh, when, I, when I tweeted about this, about their desperation and how Suella Bla Braverman hasn't got a clue, it triggered some people. Um, and I found it extraordinary to, to, to read some of their tweets because they were suggesting, for example... Well, why don't we just send them all back to France? Well, if you voted for Brexit, you've made that very difficult as it happens. Migration, net migration to this country is now half a million people. When David Cameron, I seem to remember, and the, the hostile environment of Theresa May, we were talking about 100,000 people. And in terms of those coming across in very dangerous conditions with their kids possibly suffering from hypothermia because it's really cold out there, there's 44,000 already this year on the sea. So mm. it has all been a disaster. And the ripe fruit of Brexit is the sort of manky tomato at the bottom of the fridge that you're going to throw out. <laughs> I'm sorry. But Jacob, mate, you, you are not actually helping here. Don't throw it away. Throw it at Jacob. Um, <laughs> in the last month, there has been a notable increase, I think, in prominent voices saying Brexit has hurt us. And journalistic inquiry, I think, has been more vigorous and polls have moved significantly against Brexit, with even one in five Leave voters now thinking this was maybe not an entirely canny idea. What what do you think has made the difference? What burst those floodgates just recently? I think reality, actually. The, the whole question of referendums, if you're basing it on, as, as it was with the Northern Ireland uh, Good Friday Agreement, you're basing it on a document which people knew what it was. If it was the 1975 uh, referendum, it was based on, do you want to stay in the European economic community or not? And you kind of knew what that was because... It, that was the status quo. But yeah. if you're basing on some idea of Brexit, which even Brexiters couldn't understand and couldn't articulate, but you felt a bit upset about just the way things were, you're going to end up with uh, eventually running into reality. And that 
That, unfortunately, is what we have done. And when you've got the Financial Times doing a half-hour video about precisely this in very, very sober terms, and when you have got the BBC now beginning to mention the B word in the context of why we're actually, why nothing seems to work right now in Britain. Mm. It's not responsible for everything, but it is responsible for quite a lot of the things that are going wrong. Yeah. Arthur, the few deals we have done also seem to be unravelling. Um, George Eustace flamed the Australia deal in Parliament. The government's own fig- figures show the New Zealand deal's effect on GDP is so negligible as to be zero. And figures show that trade with Japan actually dropped. Uh, last week, government had to admit that despite its 2019 aspiration to have deals covering 80% of trade in place by this year, it will manage just over 60. Why has the Global Britain project stalled so badly, do you think? I mean, putting aside, you know, the fact that it was always overpromised. Mm. I think that the basic issue is that Britain's economy was always the wrong economy for Brexit. I always had this weird idea that that the one country that probably could have done it was Germany, or that not that they ever would have considered it, but they, they make objects which they export all over the world and they already have well-established markets for them. And if you look at Britain, which you know everybody knows we have a productivity problem, we do manufacture, but we don't manufacture as much as other countries, some other countries in Europe, and we tend to export certain types of services along a fairly narrow band. Most of our manufacturer stuff was going straight to the EU. And of course, we made it much harder. And as the FT report showed, and so many other reports, lots of small businesses in particular just find it too difficult now, and they're just not doing it. So I think basically, uh, global Britain was a fantasy built in a Victorian image of what Britain's economy was. But let's not forget that the whole point about the Victorian empire economy was that we had the so-called imperial trade tariffs. So, so you know, we, we, we had an unfair advantage at that time. So even then, I mean, it's as you'd expect for people like uh, Rhys Mogg, who, of course, have no knowledge of history, um, it's, it's a fake reading of history. Mm. You don't think there was also an overestimation of how um, hungry other countries were to do deals with that. I got the impression throughout the Brexit process that they thought countries would be queuing around the corner to do deals with us, and and it just hasn't happened. Yeah, but I mean, I think the thing is that as as Roger said, you know, it takes years to do trade deals, mm-hmm. and of course, it's not that you can't trade without trade deals, but it's just rather complicated, and it takes longer, and there's a lot of form filling. But what they'd forgotten was that within the EU, they were living in this rather magical system, which allowed them to send, you know, items and and export them all over a continent, and that actually. Uh, doing that outside with countries where you don't have pre-existing trade arrangements is really complicated. Mm. Sunak's intent on us joining the CPTPP, a sort of trans-Pacific trading bloc, uh, one of the main benefits openly touted by Trade Minister Greg Hands is that it would make it impossible for Labour to undo some of the damage by forging a closer relationship with the EU. Is he right? Well, before I answer your question, let's just pause to think how mad... A that world is, we're, yeah. out in, we're in now. So that if you're a conservative, and, and Greg Hans put this on conservative homes, so this was, this was sort of catnip to his own cult, uh, that you see it as an advantage that it would make it harder in future to make it easier for us to trade with our main trading partner. So that's, that's where the British right has, has arrived. Yeah. Uh, Greg Hans, by the way, is, you know, he's, he's not like some headbanger. He's, no, he's, no, I know. And, he's relatively centrist. And also, of course, he's sort of admitting that, that they will lose the next yeah, election, yeah, so we, we, and, which and, seems also quite yes, extraordinary. But, but luckily, it'll still be hard for us to trade with our main... Anyway, so um, is he right? Um it probably, yes, because if we do accede to the CDPPP, there are various things that would be more complicated. But that, that still assumes that Labour would go for some kind of full single market membership mm. in a foreseeable time frame. And as anyone who is listening to Keir Starmer on the radio this morning, uh, he's currently ruling that out. And I'm not I certainly am not going to say, well, it won't happen, but I think it's not on the immediate agenda. But the thing about the CTPPP is that... CPTPP. Yes, try and do that when you're drunk, which (laughs) I'm not, by the way, um, is that there are concerns there among member states about British accession, given the fact that we won't play straight with the EU over Northern Ireland. So already our own reputation 
for being bad faith negotiators is is damaging us in other parts mm. of the world. Um, Gavin, those damn experts have noted that in talks with Canada, the yardstick has become those horrible concessions granted to Australia by a Liz Trust that was too eager for Instagram wins. Are Sunak's hands tied now, or is there a way to reset to a sort of tougher negotiating stance? Or or is it the case that once you give away stuff to one partner of a block you want to join, you're kind of bound to give everyone the same? Well, Liz Truss's deals have been a series of disasters or rollovers. I mean, her Japan trade deal was basically a rollover, and she said that means we're going to get cheap soy sauce, which was actually she called it soya sauce because she hasn't got a clue. The Australian deal has really... She did call it soya sauce. I, I, anyway... <laughs> Um, the Australian deal, of course, has irritated farmers for all sorts of reasons. It's irritated any of us who don't want particularly to see certain uh, chemicals in our food. Uh, the US trade deal, I don't have any great powers of prediction, but I did say uh, in a book about three years ago, it will never happen. It can't possibly happen. Why would it ever happen? You have to get this through Congress. Why would anyone agree to it? And then we'd have to take all kinds of stuff, including ractopamine and pork and so on. So to, 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 to answer your question, uh, Sunak's in a real bind. Uh, of course, people will want the same. Of course, the Canadians will want the same as the Australians have got. The only answer, the only real way out of it, which I've been advocating <laughs> endlessly to to nobody listening is if the Northern Ireland protocol is good enough for Northern Ireland let's extend it to the whole of the UK and then there's always a bit of a silence when people try mm. to figure out what that yes. actually means why is it okay for part of the so-called United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland to have the Northern Ireland protocol for for one and a half million people in Northern Ireland and not for the rest of us because it's the single market and the customs union is the answer. But we've sort of half done it. And it's not surprising Sunak's in a mess because nobody, nobody can make sense of this. Yeah, I, I would say the difference is that conservatives don't stand in Northern Ireland. Um, Ros, we hear remarkably little about fish nowadays from our fish correspondent, <laughs> our unofficial fish woman. Um, Last we knew, it was all court cases in World War Three. What's the current state of the fisheries deal? Yeah, British fish. Now, I've been wanting <laughs> to talk about this for ages. No, I haven't really. Um, but <laughs> the reason you're not hearing much about it is that the main the main issues of dispute have largely been settled and were settled at the beginning of 2022, which was delayed because we were fighting over that. But the the final deal was that 25% overall of the existing EU quota in UK waters would be transferred to the UK. And that would take place over a five and a half year period. So mm -hmm. until the middle of 2026, if you're still awake. So that was okay. that was what was agreed. And it is disputed whether this will lead to a fall or a rise in the value of catches. So I'm not going to get into that because there is a lot of dispute and I don't want to you know, confuse listeners. There's a couple of points worth making which are currently quite live. One is the problem with mollusks. So things like oysters and mussels, they can't be exported to the EU now unless they've been purified because we're now a third country. Yeah. While we were in the EU, they could be. And that creates a lot of extra costs and problems, as you might expect. The other issue is whether the government should create more things called highly protected marine areas. Now, this was touted as a big advantage of Brexit. Basically, the idea was that we would be able to create marine reserves off the British coast, which sounds great, right? And, you know, protected. The problem is that British fishermen don't actually like that idea very much because it restricts how much fishing they could do. So they are very anti that plan. And there's a lot of resistance. And at the moment, it just isn't happening. Mm. God, we need to we need to get you to do just a dedicated fish podcast because I could listen to that forever. No, you couldn't, Alex. You I could. <laughs> Arthur, um, ERG spirits were inflamed, not that it takes much, by a speech Ursula von der Leyen gave in the Irish Parliament to mark 50 years of Irish membership. Is there anything to their puce-faced rants or are Brexiters just shadow boxing now more in nostalgia than anger? Well, uh, obviously, um, puce-faced rants are a feature 
of this particular demographic. Uh, this is all about Strongbow, and I'm not talking about cider. In 1170, um, Strongbow, which is a very cool name. I think he was he was Earl you of... You thought the fish segment was boring. I know. Now we're, now we're going to get you onto the <laughs> Irish history segment. The, the Normans invaded Ireland in 1170, and a bloke called Strongbow was the commander. And ever since then, people from this place... Uh, whether we call it Great Britain or England or whatever, have sailed over to that place and gone around killing people on a fairly regular basis. Um, and Ursula von der Leyen was, of course, alluding to that in her speech. And it's not unimportant because she was making the comparison with Ukraine. Now, let's not forget that Ireland is not in NATO and therefore Ireland's relationship with the support to Ukraine is rather different to other mm -hmm. European uh, countries. So it seems to me that there's quite a lot going on with that speech. And it, you know, anyone who sort of tries to be a mildly dispassionate in a reading of Irish history would have to acknowledge that the English have done quite a lot of oppression. But of course, for someone like Jacob Rees-Mogg, um, it's probably part of his kind of self uh, image that, that we can't accept that Britain has ever done anything wrong anywhere ever. You know, this is this is just I, I have talked on this podcast before about my ignorance of British history and how many countries we have invaded in the past. Well, it started with Ireland. You know, you start with the close one and then sort of spread outwards. I had no idea. I thought we first got involved in Ireland under Henry VIII. Oh, no, that was much later. So, that, yeah, the Normans got it. And you could say, well, the Normans weren't English. Yes, but they, they did start from England. So, you know. Well, OK. <laughs> Two countries on the world stage have enjoyed decades of near total control with protests rare and when they do take place brutally repressed. In Iran, the protests were triggered by the death of Masa Amini after she was arrested by the notorious morality police who enforced so-called modesty laws. Over 300 people have reportedly been killed since. In China, protests against the zero COVID policy escalated after a deadly fire in the capital of Xinjiang, which had been in lockdown for over 100 days that killed at least 10 people who were restricted to their apartment building. Arthur, these protests in China come only weeks after President Xi Jinping secured his hold on power. Why do the Chinese public feel emboldened to protest now? Well, that's a really good question, and it might not be very easy to answer. The, the fact that the protests began in Urumqi, which is, as you said, it's in Xinjiang. It's a place where Uyghurs live. And, of yep. course, everybody knows these are the people who are being oppressed. And But other parts of China, people of different ethnicity, of the majority Han Chinese and ethnicity, have come out in protest to some extent in sympathy with, with these you know, uh, with the minority population there. That points to an interesting thing about the degree to which these COVID restrictions have affected everyone and have sort of reached a boiling point. I mean, there were some earlier protests in October and November which weren't sort of put down in a very brutal way. So it may have been that people got slightly emboldened. They saw that actually it didn't end awfully if you did this thing. And that gave people the sense mm. that they could they could come out and protest. But of course, you know, the history of protest against communist China doesn't end very well, as we all know from 1989. It's just to get the sense that this is a much wider base. And protesters were heard chanting down with Xi Jinping and down with the Communist Party, which I find just astonishing. Could this actually develop into an existential crisis for the CCP? Um, it's hard to know. Uh, and I mean, the first thing I, I wouldn't want to present myself as a China expert. Uh, I heard one person saying that the difference, why this is more worrying for the CCP is that the Chinaman Square, ultimately, that was in one place in the capital city. Mm. And when it came to a brutal crackdown, it was easy to arrange. Whereas here, you're obviously, um, it, it, it is spread across the country. And I mean, it's literally in sort of all corners of the territory. On the other hand, China now has a much more intensive and tech-enabled surveillance state. So that suggests that it may be easier for the authorities to sort of keep a lid on it. Mm. Ros, uh, lockdown rules have begun to ease, despite case numbers actually continuing to rise. Why has China been so heavy-handed about COVID and so behind the vaccination process when the rest of the world has largely moved on? 
Well, there are a number of reasons. I mean, practically speaking, it's because Chinese vaccines haven't worked as well as the mRNA ones that we've used extensively in the West. Um, And early on, the government actually warned elderly people that they might not be safe for them. So naturally, the elderly people didn't take them. They've since changed that advice, but it was a bit too late. China has actually been offered mRNA jabs, but it has refused them. It's trying to develop its own, and we don't know how far it's got with that. The other main reason is because zero COVID became a symbol of Chinese power, Chinese difference, and the ability of the state to protect its people, which is a cornerstone, obviously, of communist rule. You accept intense surveillance and restrictions in order to do this. And the regime struggled to abandon that narrative because it considers it extremely powerful. And finally, because they they could. I mean, the surveillance degree of surveillance, the state power means it can enforce policies that just would not be tolerated in democracies. Yes, China monitors its the lives of its citizens very closely from CCTV to social media. How does this affect, do you think, the potential for protest? Oh, enormously. I mean, it's not you it's not like going to a protest in Britain um, where already that that is being made more risky and difficult by government policies. But in China, your face will be recorded, you'll be tracked down, your phone can be tracked. It's very easy to find out who's been at a protest and to follow up by visiting them and making it clear to them that this is unacceptable by whatever means. I mean, we know that even a BBC reporter filming the protests was arrested and beaten. So God knows what has happened to some of the people who did take part in protests. Uh, There's There hasn't been, you know, too much relaxation as well. There was a new crackdown on the virtual private networks that people were using to coordinate protests just a few days ago. China is not letting up on this. And it's interesting because the intense surveillance that it has of social media means that China can actually track track people's unhappiness very closely. And logically, you'd think that it would have used that knowledge and... Uh, and uh, released restrictions earlier, but it waited until people went out into the streets before it did. Mm. Gavin, uh, there are ways for Chinese people to sort of bypass the Great Firewall, as it's called, censoring the internet, which even bans Google. Um, Just how effective is it? Um, I'm no tech expert, so I I can't really answer that directly. I mean, I can can say what what does seem to be obvious, which is that Xi has got a number of problems. And one of them is whether you have tech or not, people still talk. Xi seems to have blinked. And he's got not just this, this obvious domestic problem. He's got a question of people, can they work or can they not work? Where is, if China is the workshop of the world, where is the work being done and how much is that affecting the economy? He's got the problem that uh, his supposed special relationship uh, with Russia doesn't seem to be going terribly well for obvious reasons. And of course, there's the long-term demographic problem, which uh, Indian and uh, Indian newspapers point out all the time, that they have got a much younger, more energetic and actually more inventive or creative population than China itself. There are a number of problems which Xi has to face as he goes into his, what is it now, his third term. The surveillance state may have its, um, uh, may be able to do certain things. And it's very unlikely, it seems to me, that he is politically in danger. But he is changing course, it would seem. Mm. Arthur, The protests in Iran, meanwhile, um, show little sign of abating. Is the initial anger over Amini's death still fueling them, or have they grown into something different? No, I think they've grown into something different. I think it's grown into the final breakdown in the relationship between the Iranian people and the regime. And it's very hard to see how the regime comes back from this, but I wouldn't... I'm. I'm not going to say that I think it will all be over in a few weeks because it's just very hard to predict. They they invest so much, a bit like China, in different ways, mm. but in, in the tools of repression. But I think finally, it that if you look at what the leadership is saying, they're all contradicting each other, that there are statements coming out which then are, are, are sort of unclear. And, and that looks like a system in collapse and panic. Mm. I mean, look at Assad next door. Yeah. Um, you can cling on for years exactly. if you're willing to kill everyone. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, it yeah. may be monodirectional, but you can certainly do a lot of damage for yeah. a long time. Um, Ros, it was announced by officials that the morality police had been disbanded. Then it was sort of unannounced and activists impugned this. Um, but does even the fact that it is being discussed at all point to the regime preparing to capitulate to a certain extent? 
Well, as Arthur says, clearly they are trying to work out what on earth to do. More widely, Iran has a really, really difficult choice to make for Iran about whether it pursues its links with Russia or whether it tries to go back and revive the nuclear deal, which which collapsed. And the more it represses protest, the less likely it is to be able to resurrect the nuclear deal. So that it's all tied up as well with Iran's power and status in the world. It's not just a domestic issue anymore. Mm. Gavin, you you heard and interrogated a lot of analysis of Arab Spring at the time and immediately following. I remember you very clearly. uh, uh, There was a special series of Dateline from Abu Dhabi. Why did it all ultimately fail to result in meaningful change for the region, do you think? I, I know that's a massive question, but... Well, uh, yeah, it's it's massive because obviously uh, the so-called Arab world is very, very different. If you're in Lebanon, there are reasons why it's a it's a complete mess, despite uh, having so much opportunity going for uh, the Maghreb and Tunis- Tunisia, where uh, some of this uh, kicked off. It was about uh, lack of opportunity for young people who couldn't make a living. And in many other countries, that was the case too. But the fundamental tension that sort of brings us together is... Uh, a question between uh, authoritarian governments of various types, including uh, sometimes ones run by royal families, uh, the Western idea of democracy, and also Islamism. And in a way, it's the uh, hanging on to nurse for fear of finding something worse, that what has tended to happen is that authoritarians or quasi-authoritarian governments have tended to reassert themselves. But part of part of this, I mean, obviously Iran is not a, a, a not an Arab country, but in the case of Iran, um, uh, you know, Iranians and Iranian exiles have said to me, one of the things that happened with the Iranian revolution was they looked at the American system of checks and balances and they did it in a very Iranian way. So you've got the morality police, the besieges, the army, the police, who are all different power centres. And you've got the Council of Guardians, you've got the parliament, you've got the president, and you've got the supreme leader, who are, which are all different power centers mm. so mm. it's very difficult for anyone to overthrow the government because it's not as if there's a shah you can overthrow and you can start the revolution the revolutionaries were very clever in the way in which they set things up mm. uh, arthur one final word on russia mm. another country where dissent is met with prison if you're lucky and a cup of polonium tea and a novichok pasty if you're not um but Key installations in Russia of late have developed a mysterious habit of combusting. Just before we recorded, there were reports of explosions in two military airfields, really quite far away from Ukraine. One is very close to Moscow. Is this sabotage by external agents, incompetence by an increasingly stretched Russian reserve army, or are there grounds to suspect there is internal dissent? Well, this is one of the biggest questions sort of out there at the moment. Um, And what's the answer? Well, (laughs) I think some of this will be Ukrainians. uh, But, for example, today's explosions at the airfields, uh, as you said, they're a long way from Ukraine, but they're airfields where long-range bombers take off from, uh, including, actually, I think, nuclear-capable bombers. So this this is a massively significant strike. Uh, at Russia's strategic integrity. Mm. Now there are there are diff- we hear different stories. There are uh, people online who call themselves Russian partisans and take credit for things having blown up. But of course, you know we all know throughout history, people who blow things up aren't necessarily the ones who take the credit for it. There's a guy called Ilya Ponomarev who was a Russian communist politician who then he fled to Ukraine. Uh, in 2014, and and he he alleges that that it's it's Russian partisans doing this stuff. It is known, for example, that uh, one of the reasons that Russia had that 40 kilometer traffic jam when they were trying to invade Kiev was because they were supposed to have come in by train, and partisans in Belarus had stopped that by hacking the railway network. So there's a lot of stuff going on, and there may or may not be a role for international mm. intelligence agencies in supporting some of this. So I haven't answered your question. Um, I don't... Well, you sort of have. There are a lot of moving yeah, pieces, I, 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 What I don't think... And it, it yeah. needn't be one thing no. or the other. It could be quite right. a lot of actors working in tandem. That's right. And I, I don't think, with no discredit to Ukraine, but I don't think with everything else on their plates that they can be doing all of this by yeah. themselves. Yeah, interesting. Thank you.
Today, as we record, the 5th of December is the deadline for Tory MPs to say whether or not they'll defend their seat at the next election. Polling has been making all kinds of safe Tory seats look anything but. Big hitters like Sajid Javid, Nadine Doris, Alok Sharma and several others are definitely out. Others like Liz Truss, Michael Gove and Boris Johnson have promised to stand, although how much a Boris Johnson promise is worth, I don't know. Politica's aggregate poll of polls shows the Sunak bounce to be more of a Sunak bump, with Labour still ahead by over 20 points. A poll out on Welsh voting intention has Labour 33 points ahead. In the City of Chester by-election, Labour held the constituency by 61% to the Conservatives' 22, a 14-point swing, which meant the best ever result for Labour in that seat and the worst ever for the Tories since 1832, when Jacob Rees-Mogg was merely a nipper. But even as Tory MPs seem to be fleeing the sinking ship and right-wing newspapers have gone into full meltdown, progressive commentators are panning a river full of gold nuggets for bits of excrement. Why is it that progressives just cannot take a win? Roz, lowest overall vote for Labour since 1935, declared several fans of Corbyn. The winner, in fact, was voter dissatisfaction. Labour lost thousands of votes. Hashtag Starmer out, said another. But this isn't coming from one side. A swing to Labour of 14% falls short of where the party needs to be, wrote John Rental. Is critique just the natural state of being for the left space? Yeah, I think actually it is. And there's a number of really interesting reasons for that. I mean, clearly there's a number of Corbynites who are unhappy with the Starmer leadership, despite maybe because of their poll lead. Okay. Uh, it's, it, but it's also as if you have to be in a constant state of dissatisfaction with the status quo if you're on the left, because otherwise you'll lose your edge and get complacent. I think there's also that going on. People across the left also hate to be wrong. There's a kind of mortification about calling it wrong that I think dates back to 1992 and Neil Kinnock mm. believing that he had won the general election when he hadn't. And the last reason is actually even more strange in a way. When you believe you're on the side of the poor and downtrodden, as the left tends to do, it is really hard when the poor and downtrodden don't agree with you. And don't vote for you. And it is, an, you know, no, it is an attack on your core values, whereas I think the right is much less embarrassed about losing. They're just more blasé because they don't take it so personally as an attack on their values. It's just, you know, it's the way the cookie crumbles, as Boris Johnson said when he exited Downing Street. And so I think there's a number of things going on. In answer to your question, absolutely, critique is the natural state for the left. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that we would rather be more right than another lefty yeah. than, than yeah. unite and win. Um, Gavin, as a Spurs fan, I, I fully recognise the state of believing firmly you are in fact about to lose badly, even though you're two goals up with 10 minutes to go. Is chronic pessimism, a sort of internal defence mechanism, a sort of expectation management? Well, you should try being a Scotland football supporter, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm now in the position of actually really hoping England win the World Cup. How I want to be pessimistic. I don't want to be suicidal. <laughs> I mean, you know, what can I say? Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't quite get it. I, although... You know, Tony Blair was pretty pe pessimistic in 1997, I seem to remember. He couldn't quite believe that he was going to win, what was it, a majority of 179. It may be also the complacency thing. You know, the last thing Keir Starmer wants is for people to be Labour Party candidates who think they're going to win their seat. He wants them to go out and be hungry. And that's a bit difficult if you actually believe the opinion polls. Arthur, the Tories are one of the world's most successful political parties by some metrics you know they're they're in power very often they've reinvented themselves several times there's a longevity and a continuity there um but they fought four general elections now two referenda they've had four leadership contests in 12 years even if they can mobilize and improve in the polls is fatigue a big big factor here 
I'm sure it is partly because of this, you know, there are too many elections and, and too many. It's funny because my kids who, you know, have to put up with me always going on about politics. The other day, I think my son was saying, well, don't, isn't there a general election every year now? Because, uh, you know, to all of us, that seems mad. But if you're 11 years old, that seems yeah. reasonable as, yeah. as a sort of assumption. But I think another factor here is the types of people becoming Tory MPs. So... When I was growing up, most Tory MPs were sort of World War II veterans. A lot of them actually sort of heroes of that conflict, whatever one thought of their politics. And a lot of them had come through sort of running big businesses or people who had some substance. Whereas now, if you look at some of the people uh, leaving Parliament, these are people who never did anything before they were in Parliament. Uh, and possibly they're people who were getting into politics for reasons that are Less laudable, I imagine. I mean, Diana Davidson, I think she was a reality TV star for a while. Mm. Um, so it, these are people who probably don't have the patience to do something quite difficult for a long period of time if it doesn't give them the kind of feedback that they're hoping for. Mm. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, you know, that the general vulgarization of right-wing politics has led to these sorts of people who, pro who pro they just don't have the staying power, I think. And they certainly, I doubt, would be very interested in being in opposition. Mm. Rose, do you think the next election will be determined in the opposite way to the last one, in, in, in a sense that Tory voters just stay at home rather than switch to Labour? No, not necessarily. Um, I mean, I think a re major reason why Labour lost the last election was Corbyn's unpopularity. Mm. And even people who would normally have supported Labour could not bring themselves to vote for him. And that was established. And that was an element in the uh, Red Wall crumbling. Starmer doesn't put voters off in the same way. And I think there is a growing surge. But it also doesn't turn them on in the same way. No, but there's a growing surge of feeling, I think, in the country that Britain badly needs a change, yeah. which there wasn't in 2019. Things are broken and falling apart so much. You know, in the last few days, I have encountered three, three instances of the NHS just completely failing people in different ways yep. and that's not you know the NHS's fault that's the government's ultimately the government's fault and the government's responsibility and I think that feeling is growing and that is what will drive people to vote Labour now I mean, clearly Starmer is no Tony Blair but that may not be a handicap to him. Gavin poll watchers will feel validated because this result reflected the national mood as they've predicted it. They got it pretty much spot on. But two years is a long time. And re realistically, how much can the Tories close the gap? Or might things get even worse for them? They might get even worse for them. I mean, any, almost anything is possible in British politics. I mean, we had a complete joker as prime minister. Well, we actually, we had several, didn't we? we so we have less stability than post-war Italian governments. However... I do think people have looked at the Conservatives and are thinking in their heads, are things better now than they were a decade ago? And I cannot see how with Austerity Mark II or whatever it's going to be that Sunak eventually delivers to us, that things are going to be better within, within two years and they may indeed be even worse. So if Labour can persuade people that they are hungry for it, ready for it, and not taking people for granted, I think they will... Uh, win, at least according to the opinion polls. Only a few weeks until the days start getting longer again, but listeners still need distractions for the dark evenings, away from the madness of politics, and uh, we can't keep watching Angela Rayner raving on a loop, which definitely has lifted my spirits this week. So before we go, it's time for our panellists to tell us their escape routes. Gavin, what's yours? My escape routes have been to watch some brilliant films. There, there, it, there's so much good stuff around at the moment. I've been watching uh, Argentina 1985, which is about the legal case brought against the the, the, the Argentinian junta. Uh, brilliant film, wonderful film. Uh, Hallelujah, but which is the story of the song Hallelujah, but also of Leonard Cohen, which is fascinating. Um, many of the twists in this, I didn't realise it was in an album which wasn't good enough for Columbia, so they didn't release it. And eventually, years later, it's become the one that, you know, if you were on American Idol or whatever, that's the, the power song that you're going to sing. Uh, and also the Banshees of Inner Sharon, which I 
would struggle to describe, but I can say it's a great McDonough film and it made me laugh and it almost made, made you cry as well. So some great films at the moment. Good selection there. How about you, Rose? Uh, well, I saw Othello at the National Theatre over the weekend and it was brilliant. Um, uh, highest praise is that my 13-year-old daughter said that it was not boring as she had expected. Uh, which, <laughs> that is pretty, that is, that is that is solid. pretty good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was good. But, but for, to be less London-centric, because obviously not everyone can make it to National Theatre, um, I'm really enjoying Jonathan Coe's new novel, Bourneville, which is, which is a great read, really good, and has lots to say about Brexit as well for those people who want to hear more about Brexit. Very good. How about you, Arthur? Uh, well, the thing that has been my escape route for the last couple of months really has been uh, music. In, in I, I was um, I had played a very small role in a performance which actually took place on Saturday of Monteverdi's Vespers, which is I'm sure everyone knows her. Probably the high point of 17th century music, and it was an excellent performance because we had all the original instruments, and so it was a sort of authentically uh, period performance, and so that was that's been a wonderful distraction. Sounds fabulous. I feel like a bit of a philistine with my choice because I've been uh, binging on a um, hundred fil- scariest film moments on Shudder. Um, Shudder yep. Yes, you are a philistine. Yes. Shudder did a deal um, where you could get six months for 99p a month and I'm a big horror fan. So I'm binging on Shudder, generally speaking. I'm shuddering, as you explained. And they have a fantastic thing where they do a, a sort of countdown of the scariest moments in film. It's like eight 45-minute episodes. So you get big chunks um, and good interviews and how it was made and all of that. And it's really interesting if you're a horror fan. So that's my recommendation. And that's the end of the Tuesday edition of Where God What Now. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you at the end of the week for another episode. Don't forget the new series of Origin Story and Doomsday Watch are both out now. And remember, love is not a word. It is an act. If you want to help Oh God What Now, you can act out your love on Patreon. You'll get the podcast early without adverts, exclusive merchandise, and a shout-out on the show. So here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Cornershop, along with a thank you to some of our lovely backers. So it is uh, thanks and love, obviously, from me to Gavin Bennett, Francesca Oyagoa, John McDevitt, and Thea Marie Richolt. And greetings and thanks and also love from me to Sarah Smith, I, Claudius, Sally Kemble-Smith and Amy Taylor. And love from me to James Dewberry, Rukaya Najjar, Andre Thatcher and Caroline. I don't like these expressions of emotion, just mild fondness and gratitude from me to Liam Riley, Alistair Gellin, Jason McMahon, Stephen Toland. I'm only joking. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Rod Taylor, Gavin Ensler and Arthur Snell. The producers are Jet Gerbertson and Alex Reith with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Audio production is by me, Robin Lieburn. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production.